Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Throughout our nation's history, the struggle to expand civil liberties for marginalized groups has been an arduous one that continues to this day. Along the way, there were many known and unknown figures that contributed to bring about the societal and political changes needed in order for us to say we are striving towards a more perfect union. The subject of today's podcast is J. Alexander Childs, a Lexington lawyer who also happens to be the first African-American lawyer to practice in Lexington. He may not be a well-known figure in the mainstream history books, but that is why we are highlighting his important work and taking his fight against Kentucky's separate coach bill all the way to the Supreme Court. In the spring of 1892, a heated debate raged in the streets of Lexington and other communities all across the state. Kentucky's separate coach bill passed the state Senate in April, and after extensive debate, it passed the state house in the evening of May 20th. When it landed on the desk of Kentucky's governor, John Brown. The separate coach bill would require that passenger railways have completely separate coaches for white and black passengers. The Kentucky separate coach law followed a trend starting in Florida in 1887. Kentucky's bill was introduced after bills had already passed in Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, and Tennessee, bills that were virtually identical to each other. The front page headline for the Lexington Leader on January 15, 1892 read, Jim Crow bobs up in the General Assembly this morning in the shape of a bill for separate coaches. Even as it was introduced, people recognized it fully for what it was, a segregation bill to join Kentucky's other Jim Crow laws that were already on the books prohibiting interracial marriage and integrated schools. The introduction of this bill led to a huge public outcry on both sides. There were op-eds in both of Lexington's daily papers, The Herald and The Leader. Many local white business owners signed a petition supporting the segregation, which was published in the paper, and the local African-American community boycotted those businesses and signed their own petitions against the bill. Local, prominent Black community leaders joined together with other community leaders across Kentucky, speaking in Frankfurt and organizing letter-writing campaigns. Mary E. Britton's op-ed appeared on page 3 in the 19th of April, 1892 leader, between the passage in the Senate and the House. She stated, We ask no special legislation in our favor. All we want is an equal chance with other people and to be let alone to make our way while we have no longer to chill the blood of our friends by talking of branding irons, chains, whips, bloodhounds, and to the many physical wrongs and abominations of slavery. This foe of American prejudice renders our lives insecure, our homes unhappy, and crushes out the very sinew of existence, freedom, and citizenship. Ultimately, the bill was signed into Kentucky law by Governor Brown four days later on May 29, 1892 despite his having assured the black community leaders who met with him that he opposed the bill. However, Kentucky's black community did not accept this quietly. By June 22nd, Lexington hosted a meeting of the Anti-Separate Coach Committee at St. Paul AME Church. Over 400 delegates from every Kentucky county attended. 
By day's end, they had determined to work not only to get the law repealed, but also to challenge it in court and raise funds to support these efforts. Black communities in states that had previously passed these laws had already begun this process in Mississippi and Louisiana. The Kentucky Committee decided to base in Frankfurt and also determined to hire Colonel Robert G. Ingersoll to fight the case before the Kentucky Court of Appeals. Ingersoll was a New York attorney who was very well known at the time, but unfortunately, he died in 1899. The committee was not under any illusions. They knew that this would be a long, hard fight. Unfortunately, they were right. So, full disclosure, I am not a lawyer, nor do I play one on TV. So this is the best simplified understanding that I could reach of how this legislation was challenged. Legal arguments against the separate coach bills fell into two main approaches. The first approach focused on the violation of the Constitution's Interstate Commerce Clause. This mostly applied with cases that involved travel between states. In a nutshell, only the federal government has the authority to regulate commerce between states. So this approach argued that forcing railroads traveling between the states to comply and add train cars created interference with interstate commerce and created an unreasonable burden. The second approach focused on the 14th Amendment for equal protection under the law. In 1896, the Louisiana case Plessy v. Ferguson decision was the Supreme Court's way of solidifying explicitly racist laws and statutes. The majority decision in that case argued that the separate but equal concept that codified a segregation for decades after. But these state groups did not give up, and Kentucky was no exception. Court challenges and fundraising continued in the black community and organizations to support ongoing efforts to overturning these other Jim Crow laws. The first test case in Kentucky was a suit brought against the Louisville and Nashville LNN Railroad in Anderson versus Louisville and Nashville Railroad Company in 1894. Reverend W.H. Anderson and his wife Sarah took a train from Evansville, Indiana to Madisonville, and when the train stopped on the border, refused to move out of the first-class car. They were ejected and filed a successful lawsuit against LNN for $15,000 in a federal diversity suit. In 1898, Robert and Fanny Lander sued John McLeod, a receiver for the Ohio Valley Railway. Fanny Lander purchased a first-class ticket in Henderson to go to Princeton in the ladies' coach when she was forced to sit in the segregated smoker's car when it reached Covington. She later sued in state courts on the grounds of the interstate commerce and lost. The Lander decision was then used to uphold a similar loss. The state prosecuted the Chesapeake and Ohio Railway for not providing separate cars, which the company challenged and lost in 1899. As these were appealed... The Kentucky Court of Appeals in these cases clarified its stance. It supported segregated cars within the state, but state segregation laws could not apply to interstate passengers. These were only two of many cases challenging the law, but the majority of them ended in the courts rejecting acknowledgement of any unjust behavior. As the courts became more entrenched in upholding segregation, this was continually frustrating to black communities. But throughout all of this time, all over the state, community leaders held festivals, galas, speeches, and other community events to continue to raise money to support continual and ongoing efforts for years and years. During this time, a young African-American man was making a name for himself in Lexington. J. Alexander Childs and his twin, John, were born in 1860 into a family of eight children in Richmond, Virginia. 
after graduating from law school in Michigan in 1889, Childs practiced law briefly in Virginia before moving to Lexington in November of 1890. He also handled real estate transactions and became a notary, and he became highly successful as Lexington's second black attorney and the first to have argued a jury case in the Fayette County Circuit Court. He was articulate, passionate, and tenacious, and Childs and his family became deeply involved in the civic life of Lexington. He was articulate, passionate, and tenacious, and Childs and his family became deeply involved in the civic life of Lexington and their Seventh-day Adventist church. He was highly active in what is now the National Business League, an organization originally established for black businessmen in 1900 by Booker T. Washington. Childs later successfully worked to get Booker T. Washington to visit and speak in Lexington in 1902. In all of this, Childs became active with the local protests of the separate coach bill and other Jim Crow policies. He attended meetings and was a speaker and letter writer, appearing regularly in the local papers. He also handled civil rights cases as a part of his profession. In 1896, he attempted to get a new trial in the Kentucky Court of Appeals for one of his clients, a man found guilty and sentenced to be hanged. Childs argued that his black client's rights to a fair trial would require black jurors. When that failed, he traveled to Washington, D.C. to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, who declined to hear it. Childs later traveled to Washington in 1904 to listen to the arguments of a Supreme Court case involving voting rights of African Americans in Virginia and expressed his belief then of a decision in favor of my people, such as justice demands. He added, I am sorry to say that my own state was the only one in which I traveled to question my right to railroad accommodations, which were mine by right of purchase. I don't know who all was involved in his decision to involve himself in this case or what kind of support he was receiving for his decade-long fight. But it is extremely clear that Childs was committed to using his experience and focus to push the courts even harder towards repeal against massive odds. These decisions and all of these cases would have been pursued with an understanding of a threat of violence and persecution. Some members of the anti-separate coach committee lost their jobs due to their involvement. Racial violence at electing polling sites, lynchings, and harassment and beatings were common, and often no charges were ever brought against the white assailants. After the early 1900s, there was considerable decline in litigation by black plaintiffs against segregation laws. Aside from ongoing costs and risk, there was also the lack of success for the majority of cases filed, and often those standing up for rights that they had slowly won would face abuse and violence from white passengers and mobs. Childs' case against the Chesapeake and Ohio Railway, the CO, was born on June 2, 1901 when he was forcibly ejected from the first-class car with a first-class Pullman berth ticket traveling in stages from Washington, D.C. to Lexington when it stopped in Ashland. He was forcibly compelled to use the smoker car for the Kentucky half of the journey. He filed a suit against the CNO in the Circuit Court of Fayette County in June of 1902. The jury rendered a verdict against him in 1903. He then filed again to the Kentucky Court of Appeals, a damage suit for $10,000 in April of 1905. The appeals court then affirmed the ruling of the jury trial. These lower court challenges lasted nearly a decade by the time the U.S. Supreme Court heard the case on Monday of April 18, 1910. Childs traveled to Washington the week before with three of his colleagues representing him. In front of the justices, Childs argued on his own behalf, 
to persuade the court to reverse the decisions of the Kentucky courts and affirm his right to travel without interference. His speech before the court pulled not only from law, but from several biblical references. One account said, Mr. Childs has been pushing the matter with vigor, believing that a square-toed decision from the highest tribunal in the land will knock the bottom out of the whole Jim Crow car system. The unique scriptural tone of the demurrer attracted considerable attention at the hands of the court officials. The Supreme Court handed down its decision on May 31, 1910. The court rejected Childs' case, affirming the decision of the lower courts. Their decision focused on the Plessy versus Ferguson president, as well as several others, and the railroad's policy itself to reinforce its segregation. The sole dissenter was a Kentuckian, Justice Marshall Harlan. J. Alexander Childs later sent a letter to the leader that they published in the paper, along with the full text of the Supreme Court's decision. In Childs' letter, he said, The decision is not what I expected. At the last, I expected to have received justice, but from what it contains, I not only did not receive justice, but did not even get what the law says I shall have, or what equity says I ought to have been meted to me, a full hearing before the court, as other litigants not of my race. After continuing his explanation of his case, Childs ends his letter. I am not discouraged in this matter. Good will yet come from this case. The battle with God's help may yet be turned to the gate. As good as his word, Childs traveled to Washington again in October of 1910 to request a hearing of his suit. Though the court declined, one African-American newspaper said this was a celebrated case, and had Mr. Childs been successful in convincing the court of the righteousness of his contention, the entire fabric of the Jim Crow car system in vogue in the South, as far as interstate passengers are concerned, would have been swept from its moorings. J. Alexander Childs around this time began to wrap up his Lexington office to prepare to return to Richmond, Virginia with his family after having practiced law in Lexington for 19 years. However, he ultimately decided to stay in Lexington and continued to practice until 1928, and even at one point publishing some religious songs that he had written. He died in Richmond, Virginia in 1930 at the age of 70. The Fayette County Bar paid tribute to him after his death. The Interstate Commerce Commission did not ban segregated railway travel until 1955, and the Kentucky legislature repealed the separate coach law in 1966. J. Alexander Childs never got to see the success of his labors before his death. His life, however, was spent living the fierce ideals of his faith. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I want to send a special thank you to Sarah Hubbard, Kentucky Room Manager and Assistant Manager of the Central Library, for the research of this podcast. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm, or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at lex xpublib.org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.